Well, good afternoon, everybody, on this glorious Monday afternoon. Hot. Hot. Yeah, Hot. yeah. I, I typed in there that a couple of minutes ago, I was going to unplug Alexa so she didn't interrupt us. But before I did, I asked her what the temperature was in Frisco, and she said 105 Yes. At three o'clock. That means yes. we got we got stuff to go yet. We do. It, we're not at the hottest part of the day yet. We do. <laughs> and oh, we've we've got we probably have too many little devices, which means when we go on vacation, like I miss Alexa so much <laughs> because she's like in four rooms in our house. But our son Matt also bought us the the Google box where yes. you do the hey Google. So we could communicate with them during yes. the pandemic. <laughs> we, yes. And Google said sometimes they're off a little bit. Yeah. But yeah, Google, Google agreed. The Google dude ah. is saying it's 105 too. So, but you know wow. what? The grid is still operating, it's and we are here. And I hope your air conditioning's working. Ours is today. We sure do. That's me quietly knocking on wood. I, I told Scott this morning. I said I'm running out to Kroger. A very Kroger. Christian thing to do, right? Very. I'm running out to Kroger before it gets too hot. And then I said, Alexa, how hot is it? And she told me 95. And I realized oh. I missed that window at 6.30 a.m. Was there a window? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if there even, even is yeah. a window anymore. I mean, it used to be like if you went before noon, you thought you were okay. But, yeah. boy, it was hot. Not now. But, so, but we're here today, and we are going to resume our journey through Isaiah. And we are certainly at, gosh, one, probably, probably the most influential portion of Isaiah in the development of Christian theology and the Christian development of uh, and and the understanding of who Jesus was and is um, that comes out of Isaiah here in the the song of the suffering servant so that's where we'll be today even though we're, we're gonna I'll explain in a minute why we're gonna start in the book of Acts yes I wasn't crazy I just wanted you to get kind of no, ready you weren't, well you weren't wrong a, about that <laughs> maybe put another tab in there or something because we're gonna be starting in Acts before going to Isaiah so anyway we're just glad to have y'all are all with us today um what else do you have for today Patty I think that's it I think I'm just gonna let you dive in because I know you got a lot today a lot of stuff hmm yeah I can and talk for a ask, long time, ask, can't I? Please, guys, don't ever be afraid to type me out some questions. He loves getting questions. Yeah, of some kind. And if nobody we'll asks questions, you know what happens? He looks over the desk and goes, Patty, anything? And then I always have to come up with a question. So well, if you, and of course, sometimes I, I'm thinking of questions and I just yeah. come out with them. But really, just feel free to ask any questions. Scott loves he does. He really loves that. He loves getting the questions and having the back and yeah. forth. Yep, the whole bit. You Alrighty, got it. so okay, gonna pray, I'm going to pray, and then we're and then gonna we'll start. get going. Let's pray, Heavenly Father. Even on this hot Monday, we know that you have called us together here this afternoon um, to come together and to study your Word as we continue our journey through Isaiah. Um, to set time out of our weeks. Um, to do something that we probably don't do at any other time during the week, just sort of verse by verse and talk about it. And we just pray that your Holy Spirit will continue to open the pages up for us, help us to gain a deeper appreciation of the scroll of Isaiah and a deeper understanding of what's written on these pages. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, Go so, to the other very side good. Here. And wasn't it great yesterday in the sermon, it was 
we're talking about Isaiah again. Yes, well, it's just, you know, like I say, Isaiah as Christian scripture is a big topic amongst biblical theologians and just very, Isaiah was very influential and that's why I decided I wanted to start in Acts chapter 8. So why don't we just go there. Go to Acts chapter 8, verse 20, verse 26, and then I will explain myself. Okay. Sometimes my iPad just does not do what I think it's going to do. Okay. Acts 8, verse 26. I read from an iPad because I can make the font any size I want. It's kind of nice. So we are in Acts chapter 8. So we are in the chapter between the martyrdom of Stephen. Stephen is the first martyr in the book of Acts. He is stoned by his fellow Jews after giving a long, um, really an accusatory presentation of the story of Israel and how the Israelites, and particularly their leaders, um, did not see what God was doing, the new thing God was doing, and that this new thing um, uh, was, came to its fulfillment in Jesus. So that's sort of chapter 7. And chapter 9 is largely taken up with the story of Paul on the road to Damascus. So we're in chapter 8, which has a story about uh, the magician in, named Simon in Samaria and stuff, but also has the story of Philip and a man that he meets, that he's actually taken to meet by, by God. And so we know that we are in the very earliest years Right, because Paul is probably visited by Jesus in 33 AD. Jesus is resurrected in 30 AD. So somewhere in that 36-month period, this happens about Philip and the Ethiopian. Okay, and you'll see in a in a in a minute or two why we're doing. And I'm just well, I'm going to try to connect um, uh, dots today for us in this as we as we go through the song of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. And I want to start with this one. So look at verse 26. And again, guys, we're starting in Acts today. It'll just be for a short little bit, but we're Acts 8, verse 26. So you will not find this in Isaiah. <laughs> <laughs> no, Acts. The book of Acts. Written, why are you finding it? Just to make sure, written by whom? Luke. Yeah. It's volume two. Volume two. Luke, the Gospel Luke is volume one. Acts is volume two of a two-volume work. So, and it's it's Luke tells us that he has pulled this together and written it written it down after a careful investigation of everything he could find about the events he recounts in the Gospel and in the Book of Acts. And in the Book of Acts, it's pretty clear that he is present for some of these events himself. So, anyway, Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, um, one of the apostles' disciples, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. That would be along the coastline, uh, well, leading from Jerusalem toward the coastline, because Gaza's on the coastline and Jerusalem's a bit inward. So it's a road from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he, Philip, started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch 
an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandaki, which means Queen of the Ethiopians. So, I'll just let me explain this a minute. The man is a eunuch. That means that he was he vol he's he was voluntarily castrated. This would happen typically for one of two reasons: because um, he was going to work in, say, the king's harem with all of the king's many wives and so forth. And in order to be trusted, the the man would be castrated, and it would be. A voluntary thing as far as I know it wasn't something that you had to have done but you would have a good life and you would be well compensated and you would have three squares a day and all the rest of it the other reason um, was to try to keep the man from being subject to extortion blackmail the appetites the mistakes in life that all right revolve around human sexuality if you were in charge of a lot of money. And that's probably the case here. And that's why this man is an Ethiopian eunuch. And he is an important official. He is Ethiopian. Um, Ethiopia is south of Egypt, okay? Um, so look at the next and uh, remainder of verse 27. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. So, does that mean that he's Jewish? Probably not. Probably he is a, what was called a God-fearer. That would be a Gentile who would become interested in, enthralled with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and indeed seek to come to Jerusalem and seek to get to the temple and participate and learn if, about the scriptures and so forth, a, a proselyte in a, in a way. Um, so this man um, had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The Spirit, Holy Spirit this is, right? The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Now in the book of Acts, the main mover of the action in the book of Acts, the ones moving things forward, making things happen, is the Holy Spirit. Because it is God who is making things happen. And the Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence with us. And so it is, it is God who is doing this in the person of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. So, um, so I did, I'll read on a little bit. Verse 30, then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading, Isaiah the prophet, just what you and I are reading. And Philip asked him, do you understand what you're reading? Verse 31, the man says, well, how can I unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And here I've got a little, I found a piece of iconography. Iconography? Yeah, iconography about this. There we go. There's St. Philip, the deacon, holy Ethiopian. The Ethiopian is holding like a little a representation of a scroll and a representation of 
the portion of Isaiah that he is that he is reading from, okay, while in this chariot. Cool. So the man says, how can I unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Verse 32. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. Quote. This is from the Song of the Suffering Servant. This is from Isaiah 53, where we will be today. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Is he talking about himself or someone else? Then Philip began to answer that very pass began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea, which is all on the coast. So, why did I bring you this story from the book of Acts? Because it shows that early on, early, 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 right before, before there is an Apostle Paul, the Christians are already seeing in Isaiah 53 the story of Jesus. They're seeing Jesus in Isaiah 53. Because when you read Isaiah 53, you're left wondering, well, who are we talking about? And we'll talk about that in a minute. But who are we talking about? That's the eunuch's question. Who are we talking about here? Who is this suffering servant? And so Philip tells him that it's Jesus and proceeds to reveal to him the good news. Because as we will see in the Song of the Suffering Servant, a lot of it is about Jesus taking upon the, I'll use the word the servant, the servant taking upon himself our sins, our iniquities, the servant suffering on our behalf. The servant suffers vicariously, which means he suffers on our behalf. That's, that's a refrain that we'll see over and over again in the Song of the Servant. And, and so it's a natural thing to ask, well, who is this? And of course the Christians saw instantly, I'm sure instantly, um, that, this, that this suffering servant in the pages of Isaiah from hundreds and hundreds of years before is Jesus. Almost perfectly so. It's Jesus. So, if there are any questions about that story, type them in. I will make my way back to Isaiah 50, 52, 52, 13. 13. 13. Thank you, Patty. Yep. <laughs> we, we, we did this little intro last week, but I want to try to hold things together if we can. 
the first three verses, 13, 14, and 15, um, are, are, are God speaking, and then we shift to the prophet speaking. Okay? So you have anything, Patty, before we go on? Nope, we are great. I'm just job. giving everybody a chance to get back to Isaiah 52, okay. verse 13. It's so handy, Patty, that you type those things in there. <laughs> it keeps me straight. Okay. So so this is this is this is God speaking. This is Yahweh speaking. Again about the servant. Now we we have been introduced to the servant before, but now we're going to be introduced to the servant as as the suffering servant. So see, God says, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. That is what we confess every time we say the Apostles' Creed. When he says, when we say that he sits at the right hand of God, all of that. Um, Ascension Sunday is about the exaltation of Jesus, the lifting up of Jesus as being Lord of creation. Verse 14, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. I'm just going to read the NIV, the, the choice the translators made. So he will sprinkle many nations. The Hebrew here is very difficult, and I think that the alternate translation in the bottom of the page makes a heck of a lot more sense to me because it could just as well be read, so will many nations be amazed at him. Because that's the point. You know, he doesn't look like much, <laughs> but many nations will be amazed at him, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were told, not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. It will just be right there before them. Right there before them. Scott? Yeah. Do you think, I mean, this is just, as we see it, Jesus, like before the crucifixion? Or would this be like after he was scarred and beaten and, and all of that, that he was so disfigured? Well... I don't know that I would make that direct a connection. I think what this about this is a, is about is that for humans, we tend to look at the things about people that don't matter as much, right? I mean, one's appearance is not the most important thing about a person. What matters is the sort of person they are and what they're willing to do in order to love. And in the eyes of the world, you know, so much of it is about the exterior. So I, I think this is a way of talking about that, that he, he didn't look like anything. He doesn't look like, he did he, <laughs> I'm just going off today's headlines. He doesn't look like somebody who would marry J-Lo or something like that, you know? He just doesn't. He, he Not only is he an ordinary guy, he's not a very good-looking ordinary guy. It, it's, 
human appearances it it doesn't it doesn't matter it doesn't matter israel if in the context of the jews the suffering servant is israel israel did not matter in the eyes of rome in the eyes of the Ro of the romans the jews were this annoying rebellious weird people on the distant in the distant reaches of the Roman Empire. They didn't look like much. They didn't act like much. They were strange. They had their own ways. They had their own God. They thought this one God had chosen them. They had all these crazy ideas. You see? But <laughs> that is not the whole story. Because the truth is, Many nations will be amazed by them. We'll, we'll see a little bit more of this in just a, a few, um, just when we start the next verses and we talk about sort of who's who in this as we go forward. Mm -hmm. Okay. So look at verse 53. God is not the speaker now. So we have three, we have three parties that you have to figure out to understand chapter 53. Who is speaking? Well, that's pretty much got to be the prophet. The prophet is speaking here, as you'll see. The second thing is, who is the prophet referring to? And when you read it, just read what's written. The prophet is referring to the to Israel personified. The personification of Israel. God's people. Okay? And who is the audience for this? Who is listening to this? That, it, that those are the people of Israel. So I was thinking about an example. And I think in America, an example of the personification of America used to be, I'm sure not anymore, but used to be Uncle Sam. What do you think, Patty? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And he would remember the big recruiting posters and things, yes. you know, I need you, I want you, we need you, we want you. Loose lips, sink ships, all that stuff. In that way, the Uncle Sam was sort of the personification of America and and represented America and the people could pay attention to Uncle Sam or not pay attention to Uncle Sam. In monarchies in particular the king is the personification of the people. Um, World War I began because, well, I can't remember the guy's name who pulled the trigger, but he assassinated the Archduke, Archduke Ferdinand of the Austro-Hungarian Austro Empire, and, and Ferdinand was the heir to this. And from that, the war exploded because attacking in any way the king or the heir to the throne is attacking the country, the people. You slap, you slap Henry VIII, you've essentially declared war on England. Picture the ambassador from France um, coming to the royal court before King Henry VIII and striding up and slapping him across the face. If you could imagine such a thing, it, the next step is war. 
because you've declared war not not it's not just a mono a mono thing man to man you've declared war on the english people because the king was the personification of the english people so when so that is how this is constructed the suffering servant is the personification of what of israel and and the audience is the people of israel and the speaker is the prophet so we as christians come to this and we are every time a thousand times out of a thousand times we're going to see in this jesus all right and we're intended to okay acts 8 we're intended to that is what god expects to have happen so jesus then is the personification of israel the personification of god's people and i don't use the word personification a lot but if you but if if you've listened so many times i've said ah you know jesus he's that one faithful jew who would keep god's law who would love god every day and in every way and would love his neighbor every day and in every way and thus the covenant made at the foot of mount sinai could be kept because jesus represented israel or to use the words i'm using today jesus was the personification of israel he would do and be for israel what israel was unwilling to do and be for themselves so he gathers around himself how many disciples in the gospels how many are there with a capital t often 12 12 doesn't matter that you can come up with more than 12 names because you can be if you look at all the lists across the gospels doesn't matter it's the 12 why is it the 12 because there were 12 tribes of israel because jesus is the new israel and those with him are going to make a new exodus that's the last supper we've talked about that in here and in my other classes before so so jesus then for christians becomes this personification of israel and hence jesus becomes the suffering servant now that last step of seeing an individual rather than the collective people being the suffering servant is a move a, a, a step that wasn't made by the jews of jesus's day for them the suffering servant is israel because why because they had suffered like heck <laughs> so much and now they're now they're under the boot of the romans you know they could read the great promises in isaiah many of which we haven't even come to yet and they're saying oh man where is all that stuff it's been hundreds of years are you kidding me so they just saw of course the suffering servant as being being the nation of israel the collective of god's people um and never expecting that the one whom god would raise up to rescue them would be a suffering messiah by the name of jesus Yeshua, who came from the village of Nazareth, an out-of-the-way, meaningless, dusty place of no account, 
up in up in Galilee. Okay. So that's who the three the three players are. The three the three different people, sort of, we're talking about here. Where the prophet speaks, the personification of Israel is the servant, and the audience is the people of Israel. So let's plunge in. You know what I like about starting with the acts that we did first? Yeah. You know, because we do talk about this sometimes, and people do ask you, you know, who do the, who do the Jews see as the suffering servant and, and things like that, yep. and you tell them. Um, in Acts, it wasn't just like Philip thought this. Like the angel of God or the spirit of God told him to go explain it to this person that to me, I feel like that's God himself wanted people to see that See, that in was Isaiah Jesus. 53, mm -hmm. Jesus. That, that and, was Jesus. And Philip was, of course, Jewish. Yes. Raised a Jew, educated as a Jew, average education he had as a Jew. So he comes to see in Jesus the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. 53. And so now when we, we read it two millennia later, we're, of course, going to see it. For 2,000 years, Christians have seen it. You can't expect a Christian to read Isaiah 53 and not see Jesus. Right? Of course we do, as we'll see. And, even and it, not like we just see it today. I just meant like 2,000 years ago, God wanted people to see it. God wanted people right to then. see it. Yeah. And so the basic theology about suffering for others that underlies Isaiah 53 became part of standard Christian theology about, well, what did Jesus' death on the cross mean? He died for our sins, our iniquities. And many, much of the language that we use to talk about that comes from Isaiah 53. It's cool. It is. Very. Okay, so Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? This is the prophet speaking. And to whom is the arm, the mighty arm, the arm of Yahweh been revealed? He, this is the personification of Israel, grew up before him, that's God. <laughs> These pronouns are a little tricky sometimes. He, the personification, he, Jesus, grew up before him, God, like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. To go to the earlier point, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. In other words, he wasn't a good-looking guy. You know, every civilization has had good-looking guys and good-looking women who met whatever the standards of beauty and handsomeness and all that stuff that those civilizations had, and they were much valued. Think of Helen, the face that launched a thousand ships. But not Jesus. The old adage about not judging a book by its cover. It's, it's not Jesus. You know, people often ask me, what did he look like? I said, well, I can tell you one thing he does, didn't look like. He didn't look like all those paintings of Jesus on the walls of the churches I went to when I was a little boy. All the Norwegian Jesuses, you know, with the beautiful faces and long 
perfect hair streaming down his head and onto his shoulders and the sort of halo behind him and stuff. No! If you want to know what Jesus looked like, make a trip to the West Bank, round up a few less than good-looking Palestinian guys who are probably, you know, look for short ones because people are a lot shorter in the ancient world than they are today. And yeah, you might find you might, a face like that is probably closer to what Jesus looked like. You know, we have trouble disconnecting these things, right? We live in a celebrity culture. Of course, you have trouble disconnecting it. That the person of more value than anybody else that has ever lived was nothing to look at. You know, we, we think of Paul as a great speaker and an orator. Nope. He himself says he was very poor at it. That it was God working through him. That's where the power of what Paul did came from. Not him. Not his speaking skills. But, 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 but from God. So, so Jesus had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. You see, even right there, you've got something that is just already at odds with the way the world works. Because Americans are, people today are very much taken up with appearance, but there's nothing unusual about us. It's always been that way. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by mankind. His own people turned away from him. They wanted to free Barabbas rather than Jesus. He was despised and rejected by mankind. There were, there were not many Christians for a very long time. And even when Constantine became a Christian, and then over the next 50 years or so, the whole Roman Empire became Christian, you know as well as I do, that the percentage of the Roman Empire that was actually seeking to be a genuine disciple of Jesus was a small fraction of those who would have raised their hand and said, yes, I'm Christian. You know, it was sort of the birth of, of Christendom, the birth of cultural Christianity. Everybody was Christian because that's what Caesar said. So it was the official state religion. And I'm pretty much with those who think that wasn't a good thing. That it wasn't a good thing. And, um, but it's a true thing. Scott, it's you how do it came have a question to be. There from yeah. Susan Faulkner. Can you go over again as we see Christ in Isaiah, but who do the Jew Jewish people Okay, so let's see. If you'd go through that again. They the Jewish people would see in this passage what I now I'm gonna use the word nation, but I don't mean nation in the sense of a modern nation state. So maybe I'll stay away from that the family called Israel, Abraham's family. And the servant is the personification of that, the embodiment of that, of the nation of Israel, in the same way that the king of England would embody all of England. 
and if you slap, if you, if you assassinated the King of England, you've declared war on all of England because he was the personification of the English people. And that's just that's just how it worked. So so that's who that's who Jews then understood it has to be who Jews now see in this. And certainly in the intervening 2,000 years, I mean, the Jews in Jesus' days were suffering under the boot of the Romans. There's been a lot of anti-Semitic oppression of the Jews ever since, culminating in what? The Holocaust that happened a few years before I was born. So, so it isn't hard if you're Jewish to see Israel, the Jewish family, Abraham's family as being this suffering servant. Is that helpful, Patty, do you yes, think? Yes, I do. I okay. hope, hope, Susan, that was answered your question. Yeah, yeah, because it is, you know, if Jews read the Bible the way you and I do, well, they'd be Christians. Yeah, that's true. So you got to always bear that in mind. Because people all the time, well, well, why don't Jews read this the way that we do? Why don't they see in this what we see? I say, well, you know, if they did, they'd be a Christian, <laughs> not Jewish. And, you know, if you're really interested in this, there is a, here you go, there is a Jewish study Bible that you can order from Amazon. And it's filled with all sorts of interesting notes and interpretations of the Old Testament written by and for the Jewish people, by for Jewish scholars and stuff. So there we go. I'm not going to get that back in there right now. But but that's a good resource to use. I, pull, I keep it right there because I do pull it down sometimes because it's just interesting to see the Jewish take on an Old Testament passage in which I see a lot of Christ. Okay? So, verse 3. He was despised and rejected. I'm, but I'm teaching this as a Christian. So I'm teaching this seeing Jesus as the personification of Israel. That's, that's who he is. He, he was the personification of Israel. Okay? He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. He was not valued. He wasn't... Um, what, what, what happened to Jesus? He was hounded all the way to, to his death. Hmm. Now in verse 4, we come to these deeply important phrases that shaped Christian theology. Because, of course, in the early decades, after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Christians had to make sense of all this. Your New Testament is not God inscribing things on stone. It isn't God putting words that and making the humans into these blind ciphers, just writing down whatever God puts in their mind. No, God works with the people 
people like Paul and Peter and all the rest of them and the gospel writers, they have to work through this theology. They have to look at the story of Jesus and look at the Hebrew scriptures. Inspired by God, led by God, yes, but they have to do that hard work and come to an understanding of God. And that takes centuries. It takes centuries. First century, second century, third century. The Christians are still trying to work this out in a, in, in a lasting way and beating back various heresies that would, that if accepted, would have destroyed Christianity. And maybe on Sunday mornings I'll do another, we haven't done a heresy class in years, so maybe we'll do one, because they, gosh, they mattered. Still matter, because they keep popping up. They're like those, what we, the, the game is called whack-a-mole. Yes. <laughs> it's like a whack-a-mole game with that stuff. So, here we are to this, um, Jesus died for others. His death his was a vicarious death. It was for others. It was on our behalf. Surely he, verse 4, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by God, and afflicted. Just look at the ridicule Jesus takes on the cross. He's mocked. He's spat upon. He declared to be blasphemous. An utter failure. Mocked as being king of the Jews. Verse 5, But he was pierced like with a spear. Remember a spear goes in Jesus' side? Yes. The Romans did that in order to just, you know, they knew their job and just to make sure the person was dead. He was pierced for our transgressions. That's the key piece to understanding what happens on with the crucifixion and why the crucifixion is the climax of the story. The climax of the Christians of the story of God's work in this world is the time when we are put right with God and the sins are put aside. And that happens on the cross. The resurrection is the proof, but it happens on the cross. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Inequities. Um, uh, it's sort of a gross moral failure. Um, grossly unfair. Grossly inequitable, we might say today. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace brought us peace because it was on him. Right? It brought us peace with God, but it's on him. Jesus took that punishment, and by his wounds, we are healed. You see how much of this is shaped around the servant 
taking on the sins of the people, the inequities of the people, because the people had been unfaithful to God and disobedient to God and chased after pagan gods, and they, they didn't love God, and they didn't love their neighbors, and they didn't keep the Ten Commandments, and they did all this other stuff because there was something wrong with them, and truth is the same is true for us. So what happens to all that sin? God can't ignore sin. God's holy. God can't ignore sin. So instead, God deals with it. And he deals with it by focusing all of that sin upon this suffering servant, the personification of Israel, the one who would take upon himself the sins not only of Israel, but the whole world. And the question that is asked each of us when the gospel is proclaimed is, will we, will we trust that, th that that is so? Will we rely upon that for ourselves? Will we embrace Jesus' faithfulness? Each one of us. That's the question. Verse 6, this is, we all, this, like sheep, like sheep. Well, what do sheep do? They wander off because they're dumb. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way because we know best. Right? That's the end of the book of Judges. Everyone did what's right in their own eyes. We're the arbiters of what's right and wrong. We know better. We know better. We know better. Nope. We're like sheep. Wandering off, each of us has turned to our own way. And how has God dealt with that in order for us to be reconciled to God? And Yahweh laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Moni C, she heard a little study Bible, has a chart that lists 37 New Testament references. Yeah, you can find 30, more than 37, I'm sure. Because it's just so, so fundamental to how Christians came to understand who Jesus is. And so you find it sprinkled all throughout the New Testament. I used eight, Acts 8 just because it's a good kind of compressed little example. But we could go through Paul. We could go through Peter. We could go through the, the Gospels. Wherever you find people in the New Testament wrestling with what happened and what it meant, you're likely to be drawn back to Isaiah 53. And my, and, and the, I have an iPad app for this NIV, but here's this long list of all these references to Isaiah 53 in the New Testament. And you know, sometimes the references in the New Testament are, are direct, you know, where you could like make a little chart, but there's also lots of, Richard Hayes calls them echoes. And illusions, uh, with an A, illusions, echoes. He has a book called the Echoes, the Echoes of Scripture, where you're not finding the quote, but the but the idea, the germ of the idea, that Paul has, comes out of the Hebrew Scriptures, and 
the germs, the, <laughs> the beginning of so much Christian theology about Jesus, understanding what the cross meant. What did it mean that he was crucified? It must mean something because he was resurrected. But what did it mean? Well, Isaiah 53, it's not a bad place to start. So, okay, how are we doing? How are you over there, Patty? I'm doing great. We're okay. Doing good. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus says very little to Caiaphas. Jesus says very little to Pilate. When Caiaphas would challenge Jesus, Jesus usually gave a quick little, um, you know, I am or you say kind of thing, except, of, you know, he does quote a couple of very meaningful passages to Caiaphas, but he doesn't say much. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? Who of Jesus' generation protested? They said free Barabbas. Free Barabbas. There was no big uprising over Jesus' crucifixion. The fact that the Romans crucified Jesus meant only one thing that he was that meant that he was not the Messiah. Because there was no expectation of a crucified Messiah. And that's how it would have stayed. And you and I would never be talking about this man now. Were it not for what? It's resurrection. You got it, baby. <laughs> Patty's figured out that almost every question I ask could be answered with that one word. <laughs> yeah, without the... I mean, how many of us are sitting around talking about Judas the Galilean? Not me. How many of us are sitting around talking about Simon Bar Kokhba? Nobody that I know. But Jesus, everybody talks about. Jesus can make a room go quiet, even today. So, verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, as in being dead. For the transgression of my people he was punished. You see how hard that theme is hit. Over and over and over. Not just once, not just twice, not just three times, but over and over and over and over. That Jesus died for others. He died for us. There was a purpose. He knew what that purpose was. In John's Gospel he says, this is what love is. Love is to lay down one's life for one's friends. And he did. And he did. And so you have to see this, this constant hammering away at this theme in Isaiah 53. Um, because people want to think that they can do it for themselves. Americans are, have always been a very self-reliant kind of people. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps. That kind of story always has succeeded in, in America. We're a very practical people. We're drawn to, um, we're drawn to religions that we think 
work. So-and-so's got a problem. Well, look, Scientology really fixed them up. So it must be true. There's <laughs> no connection like that. But that's, that's kind of how we're put together, okay, as Americans. It's one of the things people have observed about Americans. And so we have to, we have to hear this. That was for others, for others. Verse 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked. He died a rebel king, a failed messiah. A disappointment to everybody. That's how he died. People had, his closest disciples had big hopes for him. They don't understand it. They're confused. The men go into hiding. The women are there because they loved him. But they're disappointed too. They have to be. How could they not be? It wasn't supposed to end like that. What do you mean that this whole thing was about Jesus ending up dead on a cross? A Roman cross? Shameful? Humiliated? Dead? Dead and dead? No. Verse 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich. Because <laughs> the wicked and the rich are kind of kind of synonymous here. And with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. He was innocent. He went to the cross, an innocent man. He wasn't guilty of anything that he was being charged with. He spoke the truth. He was the truth. He was the embodiment of the truth. As in addition to being an embodiment of the embodiment of Israel, he was the embodiment of the truth. Yet he went to the cross. The truth can't always save you. One lesson there, right? Because we live in a sin in a sin darkened world. So no, the truth can't always save you. Often doesn't. It was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was Yahweh's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though Yahweh makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of Yahweh will prosper in his hand. Okay, so why? Okay. Did God know that Jesus would be crucified? Yes, I yes. Did Jesus know that he would be crucified? Yes. Did he need any supernatural powers to understand that what he was doing and saying would take him to a Roman cross? I don't think so. He knew where he was headed, unless he backed off, but he didn't back off. And this was God's solution to the problem created by Israel's sins. Because the, the family of Abraham were to be the ones through whom God would reconcile humanity to God. All the families of the earth were going to be blessed through Abraham's descendants, but it hadn't worked out very well because they had not been good bearers of that promise, good keepers of that covenant. And so God came up with the most shocking 
solution of all, that God himself would take on human flesh, born to a Galilean girl, call the people to the kingdom of God, and be crucified as a result. God himself. It's, it's a, as Arthur has driven home a lot in the last year, it is a rem, the most remarkable piece of theology that I'm aware of in any religion on the planet. But our claim is that it's true. It's not a religious claim, it's a truth claim. We shouldn't use the word religious claim. It's a truth claim. Same way two, equal, two, and two, two equals four, or if I throw a shoe in the air, it's going to come back to the ground because of gravity. It's a truth claim, a claim about how things really are. That yes, the creator of the cosmos so loved the world that he did this. Took on this human flesh in the person of Jesus. And so, when we read that it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer, and we're, we're going to see Jesus as the suffering servant, and we acknowledge that Jesus is God, you see that it was God's will that God himself would take this cup of suffering. There are those, there are many in the history of Christian theology who want to try to adopt the view that God can't suffer because they just can't imagine that the God who is omnipotent and omniscient and all that stuff could suffer. But I'm sorry. In the pages of Scripture, from beginning to us to end, we meet the God who suffers. This is a great little volume, Terence Fretheim, The Suffering of God, in Old Testament perspective. And it, it, it forces us out of some of the ways we might have been brought up to think about God, I think, and forces us to confront the realities of the God we meet in Scripture. So, of course, Jesus' life is an offering for sin. Look at the second line of verse 10. Of course it's an offering for sin. That's what we've been talking about for the past 30 verses. An offering for sin. Yes. That's another way of talking about it, right? It's a more of an Old Testament priestly kind of way of talking about it, but we're still talking about the same thing. But then it's talking about, but that isn't the end of this story. He will see his offspring prolong his days. The will of Yahweh will prosper in his hand. Those are words of hope and renewal. I don't think I can map every one of those words to Jesus unless, you know, I, I could if I got very artistic about it. But the important thing is that they are words of renewal and restoration and hope. Because though a story, even Jesus' story ends in death, death is not the final word. Because on the other side lies a life after death, and on the other side, a thousand times bigger lies what, Patty? One word. Resurrection. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> Verse 11, after he has suffered, 
he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. I mean, okay, this is, this is where, this is the Old Testament, but I'm gonna, going to use the um, a New Testament trick here to understand this. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will righteous many. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will make many people righteous. And he will what? Bear their iniquities. There it is again. Just in case you've forgotten in the last intervening three verses. This is about what he, the suffering servant, has done for us. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will devoid the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession. Um, intercession is when you do something for others. When you, when you, an intercessory prayer is when you pray for your friend Sally to get well. Sally's not doing the praying. You're praying. It's not about you. It's about Sally. That's an intercessory prayer. And made intercession for the transgressors, for us. Who are the transgressors? That's us. That's you and me. This, this, is, this is, gets us back to the problem that is so endemic in our culture now where people don't understand that there's something wrong with us as persons that isn't going to be overcome by education, by hope, by therapy, by counseling, by any of that. Those might help. Just, you know, they might help, but they're not going to fix the problem. The problem is deeper than that, and we can't, we can't get to that problem. Hence, we need a rescuer. We need a savior. We need somebody who will intercede for the transgressions that we commit most of which we probably don't even recognize. That's the saddest part of all, isn't it? Martin Luther drove himself mad trying to make up a list every day of all of the sins that he had committed that day. And eventually he woke up and he realized, oh man, yeah, these are the ones I'm writing down, but I'll bet you there's more that I don't even see. Well, of course there are. Of course there are. You know, blindness, <laughs> spiritual blindness, moral blindness is one of the symptoms of, of a sin-darkened heart. And even though we come to Jesus, some of that darkness is still with us, right? Because we live in between the times. Mm -hmm. So some people theologically make the mistake of thinking that after you come to Jesus, well, that's all kind of behind you. Well, the fancy word is that's an overrealized eschatology. <laughs> it brings it brings everything of the future right now into the present. Well, not really. It's a, there's the already and the not yet. There is the present and the coming, and you have to hold those two things together, or you're going to end up at the wrong place. So, in closing. I want to go to Philippians chapter 2. 
Because Philippians chapter 2 is much like the suffering servant passage in my mind. Because it talks not only about what Jesus took on and how he suffered, but his exaltation. Remember that we start with the exaltation. Here we end it with these final verses are really about his vindication. I'll give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong. You may think he lost, but he didn't lose. He was the winner. <laughs> so go to, go to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And we're going, go to chapter 2, verse 1. Because I got, I got seven minutes. And we're just going to read through the introductory paragraph and then this Christ hymn that is in your Bibles in kind of po poetic form. Because it's probably something that Paul had learned along the way. Not original hymn. Okay? So... Verse 2, he says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vague conceit, Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Think back to the to the stuff in Isaiah 53 about nothing to look at. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, a slave, really. I'm pretty sure the word is doulos, slave there. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen, 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 amen. Right? That's the Christ hymn. And uh, for me, it's of a piece with Isaiah 53. They're both bringing me to the same place, that Jesus that Jesus was the one who solved the problem of Israel's sin and hence humankind's sin. But that solution was bought at a price, a terrible price. His own life. Suffering death, even death on the cross, as Paul, as Paul writes here. But 
That doesn't mean that he lost, even though it appeared to everybody that way on Friday of Holy Week. He was victorious. He was vindicated. He was resurrected and exalted by God. Um, so it's, you know, the, I can't read Isaiah 53 really any other way. It's the only way I can do it. It's to see in it, Jesus. I do understand that Jesus is the personification of Israel, and that is a very helpful piece of theology right there and explains a lot of things about why Jesus does what he does, that he is determined that he will be for Israel what they were unwilling to be for themselves, that he would do for them what they were unwilling to do for themselves, and thus bring about the fulfillment the keeping of the covenant and the keeping of the promises that have been kept already but not yet yeah. there you go patty yeah. you're a professional now <laughs> <laughs> so yeah anyway so when we come back next week we pick up there we'll pick up at isaiah 54 which is about the covenant of peace but just spend some time this week back in isaiah 53 you're probably familiar with it um well there's just you just if you if you listen carefully your ears will perk up at it all over the place it's everywhere okay patty's coming around the table okay so when we first started class a number of people wrote down how hot it was where they were yes who won well right <laughs> now it's officially 108 in frisco but it feels like 110 so <laughs> wow wow <laughs> Wow, I don't remember how many years ago that like we. I think 2011. They say wow. was the last year we had a summer. This kind of like this one. Hot. Sorry, I'm. Trying but to I have forgotten all about that. Yeah. Wow. And I don't need to be reminded. I never needed to go through another one. Me neither. Yeah. Me neither. But aren't we blessed? We are inside. We have air conditioning. Yeah. We have air conditioning. The grid's operating. Our air conditioners are working. Yep. Very We're getting a lot of people. Particularly other, I was, we were talking about this today. I mean, we in Texas, most of us have air conditioning, and there are sadly people who don't, and they need to be, get to cooling places and convention centers and things. But in a lot of parts of the world, they are struggling with a lot of heat, and they are not in places where people typically have air conditioning. Yes. I think it's, might have even gone up since then, but I, I read a couple of days ago that tomorrow was going to be 100 in London. And, you know, that may have even gone up as to what they're projecting. And that's not a place where your typical mm -mm. I mean, English person has air conditioning. No, no, we've been there. Yeah, they've never needed it. Mm -mm. So, we, st we were blessed to go on a wonderful cruise one time that took off from Copenhagen. <laughs> yeah, I remember this. And, um, but wow, we did not realize when you were spending these exorbitant amounts of hundreds and hundreds of euros for a hotel room, um, and we needed three beds because we had Robbie with us, who's a teenager and, and younger, traveling. And oh my gosh, it was a heat wave. It was a big fancy hotel in the big famous square in Copenhagen. And they were not air conditioned. Not air and we, it we was didn't hot even as the dickens. Think to ask if they were air conditioning. <laughs> it was hot as ever in uh, there. Anyway. anyway. Anyway, right now, let's just close in prayer. Okay, love. Okay. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day. And we, we do thank you, God very very much for air conditioning and um that with even all the craziness in the world that we live at the time we do lord 
uh, and how blessed we are to have this cool air. We pray, God, that you would watch over each person in this group, Lord, as we're gathered today to study your word. And we do thank you, God, for the clarity um, that Scott brought us today. We pray, God, that you would hold everybody in this group, Lord. Please hold us close. Lord, we pray to feel your presence. And, Lord, that we'd be looking for your presence every day in our lives. We pray for good health, Lord. We pray you'd help keep us safe. And we pray, God, for your wisdom every day, Lord, to help us make the big and the small choices that we have to make pleasing to you. Thank you, Lord, for loving us so much. Please be with us till we meet again. And it's in your son, Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Adios, everybody. Bye, friends. Hopefully we'll Enjoy see you tomorrow. Enjoy the rest of your day. 12 o'clock. If you feel like going <laughs> to a cool place, it is always cool in Piro Hall. You might need to bring a wrap, actually. <laughs> Bye. Maybe. Bye-bye.